listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast UK, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the UK. I'm Rob Wall. I help connect businesses with technical talent, and today I'm your host. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Podcast. Today I'm joined by Andy Edwards, Robin Smith, Paul Baird and Richard Fowler to discuss the cyber threats in operational technology. Before we delve into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Andy, do you want to kick us off? I'm Andy Edwards. I'm the CISO of Backfield Bank. I know it seems a bit odd, uh, CISO at a bank talking about OT, but before that, I worked at Siemens. And after that, I specialised in red teaming against OT technology. Thank you, Andy. And Paul? Sorry, trying to find the mute button. So I work for Qualys as the UK and North Amir Chief Technical Security Officer. Um, I've been in the IT industry for about 25 years now, um, and my past experience is with JLR, um, learning OT environments for the first time. Thanks, Paul. Robin? Hi, Robin Smith, CISO Aston Martin. I've spent a, a lot of time in law enforcement, finance and nuclear, so obviously OT is essential to the production of our of our vehicles. So I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Stuff. And last, Richard? Uh, yeah, I'm Rich Fowler. I'm the CISO of the Royal Mint. Um, I suppose my OT exposure is is obviously via this job where we're uh, making currencies, but um, also previously as a as a consultant in sort of the German manufacturing industry. Great stuff. So now we're all introduced, let's move on to the questions. Uh, so you all have a question or statement on cyber threats in OT. As usual, I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose the question and the reasons behind it. Each of you have an opportunity to give your take on the situation. So let's start with Robin. Robin, I'd like to pose your question to the table. Sure. So uh, I guess my question comes from, from my interest in this subject, which is how do we plan for emerging risks to become agile in our security planning? Stuff. Andy, do you want to put that up first? Um, how do we plan for Agile? Um, so I suppose this, this is the approach you take. I mean, if you take an intelligence-led approach, it, it allows you to be more agile. You, you get to see the horizon-based risks. So, um, you know, so how, how do we how do we apply this to OT? So based on like the geopolitical climate that we've seen, we know, uh, you know, as part of many things, they'll go for a fire sale first. So they'll try and disable CNI. Now, I mean, the warning signs were there back in 2014, and even up until about, I suppose, about six months ago, where we are right now, that they would go for critical national infrastructure first from cyber-based attacks. Um, one thing that I suppose we don't really see a lot of is the, the shoring up of those defences. So as well as Britain and America, well, let's say Britain does, um, America not so much. Um, Ukraine, not at all. Um, knowing that cyber attacks would come, they didn't do it. So I suppose it, it's, on, it's on your approach to how you process your current climate and how you process the intelligence of what could come to give, your, give you a stronger security posture. And I suppose um, I, OT is always the, always the dark area, I suppose. Um, Obviously, you know, when it comes to maintaining availability, nobody wants to make changes. So even though, you know, threats are coming, it's not something you can just going, 
put a new protocol break in or a new firewall or, or a new um add a new analyst to, to do it because it's not the same as i suppose cyber so yeah that's kind of, kind of where i'd go with that thanks Andy. paul your take on it um, it's an interesting question actually and robin if you don't mind I, I would really like to flip it around a little bit um you mentioned how to plan for emerging risk to become more agile in security planning I would ask my teams how we become more agile in security planning to be able to predict emerging risks in OT and IT. Because I think by its nature, um, you know, the characteristics of emerging risks is the lack of information available to understand that risk. And in my experience, it, it's really difficult to plan for. You know, within IT and OT, or certainly IT, we'll take IT infrastructure, they've sort of embraced agile methodologies like Kanban and Scrum. Um, and they've been doing it for decades now, and I haven't really seen it applied the same in security teams. So I'm wondering if, if you know, they start to adopt this this way of thinking, we might be able to to highlight emerging risks earlier. And the other thing I would consider is is how we think about risk in security. And I'm sure you've all heard this quote before: "Bad guys have to be lucky once." Good guys have to be lucky all the time. It's a quote that's used from time and time again. But, and somebody pointed this out to me, it, it seems to make security a very binary state. We're either completely secure or we're not, we're hacked. And when we deal with risk, the mindset, that sort of mindset is very, it, it's less useful. You know, in risk, we have that scale maybe unlikely to very likely. So a lot of security professionals that I certainly have spoke to in my time if they apply a more agile and less binary model um, to OT and to IT, I think um, we'll be able to see those emerging risks and those risks a lot quicker and a lot sooner. Thanks, Paul. And Rich? Um, yeah, so it's a good question and, and one that I think I'm I'm kind of struggling with my myself to to some extent. I think with regards to you know, sort of the emerging risk to, to some extent, I, I kind of feel it, it's already emerged and maybe we we haven't really moved on that to some extent. I think going back to Andy's first point, you know, the, the heads up about this probably first hit us about 2014. And I think at the time you kind of think, well, it's something that's that's happening in other countries and, you know, maybe hasn't sort of manifested itself with us yet. And then you kind of look at, you know, the, the things that are going to be hit initially are the the CNI type environments uh, of which I wouldn't actually class as necessarily being, you know, I think we're on the periphery of that sort of thing, but we're not utilities or anything. So I think there's, there's something there. And I, I think, you know, we've got to a point where we've maybe concentrated our, our resources and we've become far more agile in and amongst the, the IT area where my visibility and view of that environment is is far more granular and allows me to act in a much more sort of reactive if you like and you know sort of more proactive and agile way to to the threats I think in in OT it's uh it's a lot more difficult to do um not least because I think the the nature of the the other stakeholders in that that conversation um and not necessarily working in in that way you know i'm going to people in the ot environment and you know they've not really had to 
deal with the implications of this before. You know, they're looking at devices that are on potentially 20 year life cycles and, you know, it's suddenly like, well, Rich, why, why are you speaking to me about this now? You know, we're, we're 15 years down the road. So I think to, to some extent there's to become more agile. I think there's a need to, you know, firstly, the technicalities of addressing the risks, you know, let's understand what we're exposed to, understand what vulnerabilities are there, understand, you know, how our networks are architected and, you know, how we, how exposed we, we are as a, as a result of that. But additionally to that, I think we can better deal with emerging risk and we can become more agile in our planning towards it if we can kind of bring more parties into the fold as well. You know, I'm conscious now that I'm not dealing with purely sort of IT technical type people. I'm, I need to speak to mechanical engineers and electrical engineers and, and various other parties that need to come into that. Thanks, Rich. Anything like to add to that, Robin? No, I think they covered all of the bases. I mean, I worked in law enforcement for a long time where you, you, you tend to solve the problem by addressing it. There's something about the experience of at least tackling the problem. So we used risk intelligence and risk analytics to, to try and derive insight into what had happened and then move into forecasting. So part of my job was to forecast crime trends for Nottinghamshire Police. Don't think I ever did it successfully, but it did at least give us more insight. And then it's as Paul was talking about, it developed a mindset and resilience around risk, which was not simply reduced to what are the threats and incidents, but the risk intelligence derives insight to enable better planning. So, you know, as you develop the risk mindset around, you know, using your analytics to best effect for planning and forecasting, you get more confidence in dealing with uh, security planes. So I would say that, you know, using those experiences, developing your mindset and, and relying on your quantitative and qualitative methods to be problem oriented. Those all drive better security planning just as, as a natural part of the process. Thanks Robin, great stuff. Okay, so uh, Richard, we'll come to you next for your question. Sure, um, so my question is that uh, given that OT security is a shared responsibility and generally between IT and electrical mechanical engineering teams, um, what strategies are the panelists deployed in order to drive into team cooperation and overall enhance their security posture? Come to you first, Paul, if you don't mind. So I think once you've cut through all the politics of the inter-team play, which I think is, is quite rife around a lot of organisations, especially when you're talking about sort of um, silo departments, past experience for me is working groups. I think they've been a great place to start and have, have definitely worked for me in places like JLR. Having that sort of shared responsibility and that shared ownership uh, empowers the teams to work a lot closer together and get more things done. You know, working siloed, I felt that a lot of the teams were questioning why things were being done and why things were being you know rejected. But when teams see both sides of the coin, then they, they get to realize that you know security isn't there just to block everything and and you know your mechanical engineers and your IT engineers looking after the manufacturing you know they've got a job to do and I'm sure it's like um, uh, Robin at Aston Martin where a line goes down you know you're talking eight to ten million an hour it's a lot of money whereas a lot of the SOC engineers coming into environments like that I've only ever dealt with IT so for them, it's why can't we patch it at one o'clock in the morning? Well, in, in OT, the factory is probably still churning. It's probably 23 hours a day, 59 minutes. It's running. For... So I think having sort of that, that working group, that relationship, you know, creating drop-in sessions to have discussions and, and talking about past and present work. 
So you get the opportunity to sort of analyze what what you've delivered, what project teams are doing, you know, dare I say airing your dirty laundry as well. So again, you're cutting through all of that, that politics and very much having uh, a weekly mandatory meeting for senior leadership. You've got to get their buy in from both sides. If it's got to be from, you know, um, top down, it allows for that, that open and frank discussions because um, a lot of the time, you know, teams are pushing against each other. So if you start to work together, um, you break down those barriers, you break down those walls. And, you know, my time at JLR towards the end of my tenure there, it, it was a fantastic relationship um, and, and things were getting done and manufacturing was becoming a lot more secure. So for me, working groups, collaboration. That's great. Thanks, Paul. And Andy, your thoughts? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is a tricky one, right? So, I mean, when you consider that the, uh, from a cybersecurity perspective, they're used to securing systems, locking systems, as we talked about patching. It's more from the OT, it's more about availability. Um, but how we've overcome in the past, so I've worked on multiple projects when it comes to building submarines and testing submarines and so forth. And so even within Siemens, um, we're trying to get uh, people used to that concept that, as previously said, you can't just patch a system and bring it down, and they don't patch the same way. Um, so we we've showed the difference from a, a visual perspective, showing the difference between what actually goes on. As where when if you try to explain to a site a SOC analyst, this is the way the system works, they hear it and see it as um, the way a server would work, or a server would connect to a network, connect to a switch, and how it would call out and so forth. But when we um, when we did the split, so you, you've, seen, you've all seen the cyber-based um, SOC reporting, which was, it can show targeting reports, it can show up time. But when we, we pipe from the OT network, the, you know, the SCADA-based panels into, so it shows the availability, what it's actually processing, the uptime, the downtime, what part of, of the logic it's working through, they started to learn more. And, and from then, I suppose, translating it into like, most SOC analysts are really, you know, if anything, they know how to program in Python or some basic things. But the core concepts of whether you're writing you know, steps seven or any kind of, of ladder logic, the, the core principles are the same. So when you start translating it into that language and thinking that, look, you secure it in a different way, maybe you, know, you, you don't patch, you, you patch differently or you, you use protocol breaks and understanding the way maybe you just mitigate the vulnerability not by patching it you know the, the, the typical cause would is always supposed to patch but to to bring the collaboration together is we always find just using the visualization side of it so then you can try almost translate without having to try and explain to somebody how a plc works or um you know what what scada is and so forth so when they can visualize and, and collaborate together so things like we we use the we use a combination of Slack, we use Elasticsearch with dashboards, and then we we pipe the Siemens-based panels across um, so they can see the SCADA interface, and then they started to get, and then the teams could work together, and then as a, as a sharing um, product, we use we use Jira, um, so they can see you know how things would work or where in the flow it would. So. SOC analysts use Jira for developing software or, or responding to, to incidents and so forth. And our, our developers, our OT-based developers, they use Jira too. So when you could see you know, what's in progress, what's, what's outdated, what part of the flow it was in, and that's what we brought them together using the same tools, but just slightly changing the language of the visualizations. So 
that kind of worked. Thanks, Andy. And Robin, your thoughts? Yeah, just uh, tapping into what Andy has said there, we're big believers in knowledge transfer. And it's, uh, frankly, you find that sometimes people just haven't addressed the problem of this sort of diversion of people's thinking. It's facing a communications misunderstanding. Uh, and I had the uh, pleasure of being interim head of IT operations at Aston Martin uh, briefly last year. And there were daily outages. And uh, uh, I think we were talking about the cost of outages to manufacturing is, is massive. And we wanted to address the fact that we were having a series of P1 incidents disrupting production. And, and actually, we found that simply we weren't learning the lesson. We weren't doing root cause analysis. So we introduced that. We weren't thinking about people shadowing other people's work. So we introduced that. And these simple steps were addressing the, the, the kind of communication divide. But uh, underpinning that was a philosophy about being um, obsessed with positive design. It's a kind of key key term for our uh, our cybersecurity team, which is if you have design principles that are unobtrusive, that are positivist, that are somewhat pro-social, and that are uh, detail oriented, you could introduce things uh, as discussed, like value stream mapping, where suddenly people's delusions and fears are being eradicated because they're seeing the process end to end, they're comprehending what other people's perspective, perspectives are. And in the end, it's a joint endeavor. We're, we're trying to deliver the same objectives. And if you kind of communicate, communicate that clearly and exchange knowledge, you, know, you keep these things simple and say, look, we're trying to produce more cars, we're trying to produce more widgets. This is the process. How do we make it better? And people are willing to engage around positive design to make a, uh, a greater contribution to resolving the issue. Thanks, Robin. Great stuff. Anything to add there, Richard? Um, yeah, I think you know we we're trying bits of all of the above. There's some really really good ideas in there. I think certainly you know we we've worked gone along the the sort of uh, work group uh, kind of thing with you know with with some success but i think um certainly sort of listening to the uh the other panelists there's there's a couple of other ideas i think i could i could bring up in there and uh i like the idea of the the sort of shared language if you like and sharing tools between them i think you know sort of um finding innovative ways to collaborate between teams without you know disrupting either's sort of working day if you like is probably the way forward on this so uh yeah some really good ideas in that Thanks, Richard. Okay, well, uh, go over to Paul for your question, please. Certainly. So, within OT and IT now becoming very much a primary attack vector for bad actors, how do we secure these environments and how do we deal with legacy? Thanks, Paul. Uh, Andy, so your take on this? Um, so, how do we deal with legacy? This was the hardest part is legacy because I've never seen an OT environment that doesn't have. That's brand new, doesn't have legacy. I mean, when you consider some of these environments can take like five to ten years to build just to start, you have things out of date before you really start. But um, I suppose like, so securing them in, in the traditional way is um, when you merge the networks, it, it, it's quite hard, right? Because, you know, from the IT side or from the business side, they want the analytics into their IT environment on how, whether it's a shipping company, how it's performing, and same from the IT side, they want to see how that's performing too. And they, I think you know they don't always fully understand what goes on in between. Um, legacy, um, securing the legacy side, I think is quite hard. But I suppose multiple ways is when you when you consider most attacks start on the IT side of the network and they laterally move to the OT, right? And that, that's down to multiple things because people think traditionally you can secure the OT with 
just putting a firewall and the same sets of switches in place. Um, a lot of the protocols are similar. You know, there'll be extra ones, but the second they get a similar protocol, uh, so they can actually move into the OT network, then the damage starts to occur. Um, so we're assuming now from a cyber attacks from being remote-based attackers or internal-based attackers from the IT side of the network. But um, protocol breaks work really well in, in, the, in the form that you, you translate the protocol so you can't laterally move the same protocol into the OT network. Um, you know, you, see, we can't always, you can't fix the legacy side of things, but where we can get more secure on the legacy side of it, assuming everything fails, more programs of reviewing of like config management, um, you know, you tend to see a lot of legacy systems is that so a lot of the knowledge has been lost. I mean, if somebody's moved on and they, it's not handed over. So more programs of handing that knowledge over, doing the config management, you know, trying to become more efficient, you know, becoming more efficient within OT does help you become more secure and more pro uh, productive. So I think that, that, that kind of works, but having protocol breaks throughout your network and then obviously getting IT to understand what a, pro what a protocol break actually is, that, that can help a lot. And I suppose fundamentally, you know, making sure your devices don't show up on Shodan, <laughs> that's, um, that's always a great help too. So yeah, no internet connected stuff, but you know, um, so yeah, and with, you know, say with the protocol breaks, you can have, you know, safe, secure networks, it, it, it will work. You can get your technology through to the IT side and back again, but you are, because the attackers don't know when they're in the OT network unless they've come directly at it from, I don't know, maybe picking an IP address up from Shodan that's been found to be vulnerable, but generally they'll attack through the IT and actually move. But with a protocol break, it's it makes it almost impossible to find the OT environment. Andy, Christoph, and yourself, Robin, your thoughts? Oh, follow that, right. <laughs> that was absolute gold. So what I'd say is agree with all that. And I think having worked for a nuclear agency that was subject to an attack on its OT environment, we went through basic hygiene updates, including mesh design to increase kind of the uh, fault tolerance of the entire network. We used layering of controls. You might imagine that nuclear does sort of security protection very well, and it does, but we found that by orchestration of the kind of layers of controls that improved our uh, quality of our reporting and our review of the network. But I think the biggest thing was imparting some ownership to those uh, aging systems. So we appointed a series of in, uh, information asset owners who were charged with designing bespoke control. So we didn't have a cybersecurity analyst with no knowledge of the O2 environment going out and saying, you must do this. What we engaged with was uh, a, a network topology that identified where the likely problem areas were, what the likely control requirements were, and how we'd respond in the event of an incident. So simulation training to impart, you know, some literacy around what to do in the event of an incident so we could kind of minimize it to the to least effect. And then to engage those information asset owners to think a little bit more uh, specifically about the controls that will be effective on their individual systems. So that kind of layered approach, that project-based approach and that idea of having what Jocko Willink calls extreme ownership of the systems. They know the system better than I, so they should take charge of it and secure it themselves. Thanks, Robin. Uh, Richard? Uh, yeah, all of the above, I think. Um, I suppose looking at it from 
my perspective, sort of arriving at a company that, you know, hadn't done a lot, I think, with OT security prior. Um, we certainly sort of went back to basics and, you know, with regards to the general sort of security hygiene in and around the, the OT environment. So firstly, discovery was was key, you know, just being able to understand what it was that we were actually trying to protect. Um, and, you know, when sort of industrial equipment has been put in sometimes over decades, um, you know, often there's there's not that sort of record of things there. So we we undertook um, a lot of scanning. We used um, Grass Marlin, which was a um, an NSA sort of tool just to understand, you know, what protocols we were passing across the network, what they were exchanging between, um, which devices we had were actually externally exposed. So not necessarily on the internet, but what had remote access on there? What did we have manufacturers coming in on? Um, and then, you know, bringing all that back into sort of CMDB and asset listing. So being able to, you know, sort of clarify what we had, what versions we were running, um, understanding, you know, the various vendors in our PLC estate and the like, and, and being able to, to clarify around that. And, you know, sort of, it was interesting listening to Andy's stuff around sort of protocol breaks, because, you know, I think we've initially, at least we went in a more traditional sense in that we, we had a large flat network that we needed to to segment um and we had lots of I, I guess sort of end users that we just didn't want to be able to communicate with that ot part of the network at all so you know sort of um make, putting that break in place and now we're looking to to put more segmentation in place again so that we can sort of align with the the frameworks that the the hsc are, are sort of mandating to us um but I suppose some of the more sort of out of band sort of things that that we've done, you know, with with legacy, you know, a lot of um, legacy HMIs are running, you know, ridiculously old, um, you know, sort of Windows operating systems and the like. Um, there's been a few sort of tactics that we've we've deployed in that we've um, where possible, we've actually put sort of EDRs and things in on onto HMIs just so we can get some understanding of what's what's happening on on those. Um, we're compatible. Um, in some cases, we've actually disconnected um, devices from the network. You know, when on looking at it, we couldn't really come up with uh, any sensible reason why why it might have been on the network in the in the first place. And given the the vulnerabilities that were inherent in those, those HMIs, it made more sense to to disconnect. Um, again, you know, just sort of working our way around the um, the PLCs and the like, and then engaging with the the suppliers, you know, the Rockwells and the Siemens of this world, and just trying to understand, you know, how exposed we were as a result of, you know, vulnerabilities that we've identified. And, and again, you know, we're deemed necessary and, you know, deemed sort of relevant to the risk that we might incur by losing that particular line. You know, we've, we've patched, but... Um, I think as the other panelists have sort of alluded to, you know, what we're driven by more than anything is availability. You've kind of turned the the CIA triad on his head on his head, really. And, you know, av availability is, is king in this thing. So, you know, our assessment, if you like, a risk is is somewhat different in that our biggest risk is actually losing the environment for an extended period of time. Thanks, Rich. Um, and Paul, anything to add? No, so, I mean, some really good points from all three panellists. Uh, I like, you know, Richard's idea of getting back to the basics. You know, most cybersecurity strategies start with, you know, asset inventory and vulnerability management. So for the best part, why can't we do the same to, to apply that to OT environments? 
then you've got sort of Andrew's point about, you know, businesses are now being very data driven. Um, you know, my experience of OT environments is, oh, we're safe because it's air gapped. Um, yet um, businesses demanded that those, you know, air gapped environments are actually connected back to IT so they can, you know, have data driven um, uh, responses to, to manufacturing or to business or to whatever. And I really like Robin's point on ownership. And I think that's quite powerful when um, people are assigned ownership, they take responsibility of that and they start to care for it and look after it. So no, some really good points from all three. Cool. And last but not least, uh, Andy, do you want to pose your question? Okay, cool. So probably a question that kind of brings everything together really. Um, so how do we train cyber incident responders within the OT environment to effectively respond to in cyber incidents while maintaining system availability? And I suppose um, why the question is, is I've, I've been involved in a couple of major incidents like this before, but um, it's part of the understanding as we've talked about some of the, the other questions as well, is that I suppose for me, it's the understanding that um, the worst thing is, um, an analyst is generally trained to see is that if they respond and they shut the database down, it can always be restored. However, if you're talking about a, a, a crane or something that's been hacked and it, it's involved somebody's life, you can't restore human life. So it's how do we you know, actually get that awareness and that training across that crit critical training. So it's not a matter of just switch the button off or you know, just deploy a lot of tools and let's see where we go type thing. Thanks, Andy. Uh, we'll come to you first, Richard. Yeah, um, it's it's a really good question and, and one I think we we struggle with a a little bit to be honest. You know, certainly we've we've got the the tools in place. You know, we can see when ICS commands are, are sort of sent across our networks, and you know, our our SIEM tools and our NDR give us at least some indication of when there could be something untoward happening. I think the the difficulty certainly that um, that we experience is being able to make that judgment call about whether this is something you know this is a, a a time that you need to intervene you know we're a we're a coma site and you know the the question sort of resounds for me especially around the sort of loss of life type thing you know we we have systems that are maintaining you know dangerous chemicals and the like and there's a there's a necessity to to kind of make sure we're we're in front of that i think fr from my perspective is it's kind of multifaceted it's not always purely technical i think you know the as i think robin had sort of uh, alluded to when you were assigning sort of information asset owners in these type of areas um quite often i think my advice to to my sort of SOC guys would be that you know we need to be um working alongside those guys um who kind of understand the nuances of the of the systems that they're maintaining we can see it from the the network level we can understand that there may be commands coming across the the network but from our point of view you know we're doing the the same sort of things understanding source destination who initiated it where it came from you know the the usual sort of sock hygiene checks in that sense you know i'm i'm i have one guy who's you know kind of uh ot obsessed and and has been that way i think since university and he's able to to kind of throw some light i guess on, on things that maybe the rest of us aren't but there's there's definitely 
a need, I feel, and, and a gap in, in probably most teams to, to skill up in that sort of area. And, you know, what the answer is, I think, is is not always obvious. I think, you know, there's some of the things that we've done, you know, certainly OT-specific training. Um, we've, you know, certainly from the vendors that we've engaged with, but, you know, also looking outwards to things like the SANS courses and stuff in and around that, so at least engineers are able to build up that you know that confidence when they they're dealing with sort of ICS type um, scenarios and also with with sort of outreach as well you know one of the things that we've been doing is um, we've reached out to the the Wales OT security cluster we're involved in that you know we're speaking to a lot of other you know organizations that are doing similar stuff in amongst CNI and all the rest of it and just that type of information exchange you know it's it's something I think that we weren't necessarily in front of five years ago. You know, it's a, it's certainly an emerging risk and a fast emerging risk. I think the the low hanging fruit, for want of a better description, is on the OT sides of the network rather than the IT sides of the network. Now we've got so much better at, you know, patching and doing security hygiene on the the IT side that this feels now that it's becoming a far more prevalent attack vector. And and as such, you know, we need to sort of. Uh, increase our knowledge there so it's it's a gradual um it, it's a it's a gradual move to that but you know the 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 headlines i think are that we would we would look to improve our education we'd look to reach out to other organizations to understand their experiences and then you know we we look to overlay sort of ongoing technical training and an understanding of the environments that we look after thanks richard and over to yourself robin yeah, I think I think the reality is this is an eternal problem. I've I've been working for twenty years, and I don't think we've ever solved the the training dilemma. But I would say Aston Martin, we we try and take a perspective which is we want to cultivate behaviour through the development of skills, but we want the skills to reinforce behaviours. So we're trying to get into a sit core approach to making vigilance a value. So so security becomes part of safety at Aston Martin. So we try and speak the language of the business, and then we try to move into a permanent campaign so the days of your compliance testing you know one day a year you go and do your compliance testing it, it, it doesn't work I've, I've seen that approach for 15 years and we seem to have broken the mold on that to say if we consider that skills development is part of a permanent campaign of keeping safety and security in the mindset of our staff we can then use blended uh, nano training and, and uh, media updates to try and establish that permanent vigilance around the organisation and to enforce what we call digital literacy. So all of our staff have got smartphones. We try and say to them, look, you do your banking in a safe way and you respond to alerts and updates in a fairly kind of, you know, when I get a bank alert from, from my bank, I tend to jump out of my chair. We try and tap into some of that psychology around safety and security when it comes to skills and behaviours and try and promote uh, what we have an initiative called the Digital Garage, whereby we bring people in for simulate cyber incidents and we're lucky enough to have a cyber lab where we can actually conduct things like car hacks uh, against new models. Well, we don't do that all of the time, but it is a function we've got where you're conducting the training in a, as close to real, real life scenario as possible. You know, uh, Robin Smith has just spent £300,000 on a DB11 now let's go and attack it to see if we can nick it off his uh, off his drive. So so we we get close to reality, and we try and learn the lesson from simulations that are very real and are very impactful to then kind of link that into 
follow-up updates and to link it into the, the consciousness of the of the staff and people are proud probably like all of your colleagues they're really proud to be here so they want the vehicles to be safe and secure and we tap into that psychology to make sure that they can really take the training and development seriously great so thanks robin and yourself paul yeah really good question and and one when i was at jlr um challenged me you know hiring traditional sock engineers that look after you know corporate world is i'm going to say relatively easy it, it's still a hard job but you try and introduce ot there is not many not many people out there that, that, that can support um incidents and cyber incidents within the ot space so realizing that we looked at cross training uh, back back to the, the working groups again because there's a lot of it engineers within the manufacturing teams that were really starting to key in and on robin's point when we started to introduce that that cyber safe um really started to understand why cybersecurity was there and wanted to start to learn more so in the end we started to bring the the it engineers over to the SOC team so they could work together so you have that that ability to cross train so in the middle of an incident and to, to Richard's point, you know, a traditional um, SOC engineer wouldn't understand that segregating that machine off the network could cause any harm, could cause death. But the OT engineer realizing that that would be connected to a particular system, a particular robot, would be able to be more informed and have those, you know, informed decisions. So having that shared knowledge really worked within the team. And it sort of meant that my SOC engineers were learning something new. The OT engineers were learning something new. So they were they're very much progressive. And and probably to to Robin, at this point is you look at connected car now. Um, that's that's another extension um, of IT and OT now. And traditionally, you know, it, that could be a loss of life. You could hack a car, tell every car to turn right, and th there'd be quite a lot of sort of fallout from that. So introducing connected car into a sock is a bit of a challenge. So again, we were looked at that that cross working that cross. Uh, pollinization with the, the, the technical guys that worked on the car every day. So very big on that that cross working to be able to to understand the estate a lot better. Thanks, Paul. And anything finally you'd like to add to that, Andy? Um, no, no, really. I, I suppose part of um, you know other thing to bring up is I suppose making people aware these days that IT. Uh, uh, OT is part of their lives. Uh, you know, they might know it as IOT, but fundamentally, it's it's it works in a similar way. Not maybe not as, as industrial intensive, and the way in which they would respond, um, you know, would I suppose the, the way in which I, I put it in the past, you know, would, would you go and shut your just go and shut the gas off to your house in the middle of winter because you think um, you know your control unit may be hacked. Um, you know, how would would you leave it open? For, how would you slowly respond? You know, the you know, and I think it's, it kind of brings it all back around to that collaboration point, right? You know, um, instant responders don't always know everything, but they um, if you know how to get the right people in, the right engineers, and you do that translation piece, I think that I think that works well because you can't expect the cyber person to be you know know all the OT stuff and vice versa. But like I said, if we go back to the original first question, that collaboration piece kind of works so that's it cheers okay um well i think if there's any more any more further points on this uh are we comfortable has everyone got any further points they'd like to add great stuff okay well we'll leave it there this has been the evolution exchange podcast i want to take this opportunity to thank andy richard paul and robin for providing their insights in the topic and thank you for listening 
If you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at robert.wall at evolutionjobs.co.uk. We'll see you next time. Thank you.